We've even got a couple here who's risen in deeds. There you go. Well, uh, what a day to celebrate and be together again. Uh, clearly, you can tell we're in Bundaberg because some of you are going to struggle to do so. I see beanies and scarves. Come on, people. The weather's just dropped below 30. Um, uh, it's going to be a long, hard winter. Look, uh, has anyone here ever said to themselves, gee, I'm an idiot? Apparently not, or neither have I, um, but somebody might have once. No, look, right, we've all been there at times, okay? Well, this is Resurrection Sunday, the most celebratory day on the entirety of the Christian calendar. We celebrate that Jesus, rising from the grave, proved that sin and death was defeated. The Scripture says He's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So we have risen with Him. Hallelujah, right? This is the good news. Well, when I was doing the preaching roster uh, a year ago or something, I don't know, it was ages ago, I mapped out the year, and then when I looked at Easter, I realized it was the Passion Week of the Gospel of John. And when I looked at the passage of the Gospel of John that mirrored up to today, it's talking about uh, the glorification of Christ and the new command that we would love one another. And I thought, that's beautiful. That'll work really, really well, and I don't need to put in a specific Easter sermon. And then we actually had to do something else one Sunday, and it all pushed back a week, and I didn't think to recheck what was happening. So here we are, Resurrection Sunday, the greatest day of celebration on the Christian calendar, and this morning we are going to be looking at the betrayal of Jesus, Jesus by Judas Iscariot. Yay, right? Um, but we will, I believe, be able to see how we can still have a celebration looking at betrayal. Um, so there you go, come to BBC, you won't get a normal Easter message. Now, betrayal's tough, isn't it? I think betrayal always hurts, but particularly betrayal by people that we trust. Betrayal by people that we love. My mind goes back to a time, uh, as you know, myself and Russ, we love our spearfishing, and, and we were spearfishing, and Russ had never speared a big Spanish mackerel before, and uh, he managed to spear a 20-kilo Spanish mackerel, and it was a terrible shot. It was only just holding. And so Russ is in the water, hanging onto his line with this big fish circling him, screaming at the top of his lungs, Sam! Sam! And meanwhile, I'm just swimming around looking for my own fish. Didn't hear a thing. Russ said he was nearly crying. He's trying to pull this thing in. and could see the spear tip just there, till in desperation, as he got it closer... He tried to hug it, to, to hang on to it. So Russ is in the water, trying to hang on to a big, going, Sam! Anyway, I know none of this until I'm just swimming along. I get a tap on the shoulder. I look around and Russ goes, I hate you. I said, what? And he said, we're not friends. <laughs> I thought, right, okay. Uh, anyway, so there you go, betrayal. Of friends hurts even more. Well, we see a betrayal of a very close friend this morning, and that is incredibly tough, and we want to understand that as we look at this passage. Now, context, last week we looked at foot washing, 
we saw it had two applications. Firstly, a spiritual application that Jesus needs to be the one who washes us clean from sin. That we have no ability to clean ourselves from sin, but only through the death and resurrection of Jesus can we be cleaned from the inside out. So by putting faith in Christ, we can be cleaned. And that was what Jesus was representing in cleaning the feet of the disciples. Secondly, he set an example that we are to follow. An example of service, of humility, that there is no task that we should consider lowly as a Christian, but we should all be willing to do whatever it takes to serve one another in Christ. So we see those two principles. So after that event, after seeing the incredible humility of Christ, after hearing that Jesus needs to cleanse us from sin, after an example of that ultimate humility, how could a person be a part of that? and walk away. How could you actually be in that room, have Jesus wash your feet, and walk away? Because that's exactly what Judas did. Judas was there. Judas had his feet washed, and Judas walked away. Well, I'm going to read to you right now from Matthew 27, 1 to 5. We'll get to our passage shortly. Matthew 27, 1 to 5. When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. What could make a man have his feet cleansed by Jesus, see what Christ did, and yet still turn away and betray Christ? Well, in this case, it was for money. Judas took money in order to betray Jesus. And do you know what? It's the same today, the exact same issue today. Because people want money, or they want fame, they want pride, they want position, they want power. And they cling to these treasures instead of clinging to Christ. And just like for Judas, one day you're going to realize that it was all meaningless and it's too late to give it back. It's too late to come to Christ. All their treasures will mean nothing. And that's what we see in this passage. So we're going to start with verse 18 this week. Uh, we're supposed to start with verse 20, but I really didn't cover 18 last week. So we'll start at verse 18. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. John 13, 18 to 20. John 13, 18 to 20. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, 
you'll believe that I am he. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. What we see here is Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, and this is really important, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas is not a mistake. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas does not leave God saying, oh gee, what do we do now? I've been caught out. No, no, the point that Jesus is making here is that this is by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Jesus makes the point that I'm actually telling you ahead of time so that you will remember that I told you for the very fact that you know I'm in control and it will help you believe. Right? So Jesus spells it out so that they will know he was in control and you can believe. This is why, even though we have a bleak topic this morning, we can still celebrate today. Because although we are looking at betrayal, it still tells you this church that in tough times, God is in control. Right? That's what we see in our passage The betrayal of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, our life in Jesus is by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's what we see in the betrayal of Judas. Then Jesus quotes from Psalm 41.9, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now this is more of God showing how much he is in control. Now, he's referring to the traitor in Psalm 41.9 that we hear. He's referring to the traitor, Arthophel. I have no idea if it's pronounced that. By the way, whenever you come across one of them funky Old Testament names, just say it confidently and everyone thinks you know what you're talking about, right? So always um, just go hardcore. So Arthophel, who betrayed King David and then hung himself. And Jesus is saying clearly when he says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, that it's about to happen again. He's not only going to be betrayed, but he's referring to an Old Testament guy who betrayed and then hung himself. So Jesus is spelling it out right there. Not only am I going to be betrayed, but that guy is then going to hang himself. How much is God in control of this situation? How much does Christ know what's going on? when he references not only the betrayal of Judas, but what Judas eventually does. And he says, I'm telling you this, so that you will believe. Believe what, church? As I said, God is in control. For us today, what does it mean? It means covid God is in control. Elections, God is in control. Russia and the Ukraine, God is in control. Floods, God is in control. Right? That's what it means. That's what this passage is telling us. None of this is happening outside of the will of God when Christ knows so precisely exactly what is happening in that room. Right? This is the same concern, in a way, that Jesus is showing us that he shows his mum on the cross. 
which we'll see in coming weeks. But you know the story when Jesus is on the cross and he wants to make sure that his mum's looked after. So he tees up John and says, make sure you look after my mum. This is Jesus in the midst of heartache, caring about other people. And here in this passage, in the midst of his betrayal, Jesus is making statements primarily designed so that you right here today will know that he was in control. That you can put your faith in Jesus and know that he is in control. Right? That is what we are reading together this morning. An incredibly amazing uh, acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. However, it still hurts. There's still truth in our passage that this was not easy for Jesus. Betrayal, the coming cross, none of those things are anything that Jesus looked forward to. And so we do read this in our passage. The next bit, this is John 13, 21 to 22. John 13, 21 to 22. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. How did John know, writing this gospel, that Jesus was troubled? Did his voice quaver? Were the tears in his eyes? Was his face contorted with pain? Was it all of those things? Do you know, this word troubled is the same word used when Jesus stood at Lazarus' grave and wept. The same word used in chapter 12 when he contemplated the cross. The same word here when he talks about someone betraying him. A deep grief, a deep trial, a deep heartache. The same pain that he would feel about the cross, the same pain he feels at betrayal. Right? This is a genuine, real emotion. Can you imagine being in that room? Just try and put yourself there right now. The disciples at this point had been together for three years. They had learned together witnessed the miracles together, faced persecution together, eaten together, gone without food together. They become brothers in Christ. And then their master, their Lord, their leader says, one of you is going to betray me. Man, how much trouble would you feel if you were in that room at that time? Well, it's not me. That's your first reaction, isn't it? It's not me, but then you look around the room and you try to figure out who it's going to be, wouldn't you? But then you'd be thinking, what does it mean to betray? Maybe it just means that someone's not going to do the right thing tomorrow, right? You try and lessen down what Jesus is actually saying. I imagine how difficult that would have been in that room. What was going on in Judas' mind in all of this? Picture Judas in the room. Jesus has washed their feet and declared that one of them was not clean. He's mentioned that he will be betrayed and he's referenced Psalm 41 where the betrayer hangs himself. 
Jesus has made it painstakingly obvious that he knows what is going on in that room. And Judas can't hear it. Because Judas will soon get up, leave the room for the lure of money and betray Christ. The truth is there's a veil over his eyes. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers and Judas' veil was well and truly locked in place. Despite the truth that Jesus was saying, despite he knew what was going on, Judas is blind. As I mentioned earlier, Judas' betrayal is not unique. It started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve betraying God's command and it continues today with every person's rebellion against God until he lifts the veil. Each and every one of us in this room was born a Judas. All of us have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of ourselves. We have betrayed who God is. The amazing grace of the gospel is that God still washes the feet of his betrayers. He still offers cleansing for those who are dead in their sins. That's the grace of the gospel. We can have peace with God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Judas doesn't respond, and he never becomes clean. Judas has the outside of his feet washed, I'm sure they're a little nicer, but he is not clean from the inside because you can't do that with a bucket of water. Only by dying to self and being born again in Christ. See, what Judas had was religion. And religion still gets taught today. You can light all the candles you want. You can baptize as many people as you want. You can give as much money to the church as you want. You can attend every single week if you want. But all of that is external and cannot make you clean. It's no different from Judas. If you just go through the motions, it won't make you clean. No, you are clean by repentance and believing in Christ. Being born again of the Spirit, only that can make you clean. Then we begin to live out the commands of Christ. Then we begin to put those other things in, into practice as a response to our salvation. Not to earn it. Of course, the disciples were wondering exactly who it was that was going to betray Jesus. And in case you missed it, What we have now is possibly the most astounding verse in the entirety of the Scripture. One that I can scarce believe is in there. Peter doesn't simply blurt out and ask Jesus who's going to betray, but he asks John to do it. Right? Do you realize how momentous that is? That Peter's not the one who just blurts it out, but Peter actually holds it in, contains himself, and then asks somebody else quietly to do it. There's hope for some of us, right? Um, you may not always be the one who speaks without thinking. Um, that, that's what we see here, this incredible verse. So, you know, I always remember my kids when they were little, and they didn't think you could, they, you, know, you could hear them, and I'd hear them having a discussion, 
trying to work out which one of the three of them they thought would be the most likely to get a yes to this particular scenario. So you'd literally have them sitting there going, well, Abs, if you do it, because, you know, this thing, I think, Dad, oh, no, no, Elkie should do this, because I think, you know, they'd work it out, and then they'd come up with their little diplomatic answer, and then that representative would come to, uh, to try and plead their case before you. And I think that's what's going on in this case, that Peter's like, John is the disciple that Jesus loves. Might get John to ask this one, right? We might get a better answer here. So, so I think that's what we're going on in this text. So here's what we read, John 13, 23 to 26. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. Now, the dipping of bread into oil and passing it to someone was a sign of special friendship in the culture of the day. So when you dipped and you passed it to somebody else, it spoke of a deep relationship. And so Jesus is highlighting to Judas and to all of them the depth of relationship these guys had established over three years. Their greatest friend, their master, their leader, and yet Judas still does not respond. His decision to reject Jesus is certain. And even faced with the truth of his betrayal, he still will not yield. That's what we see in this passage. God is in control, but the rejection of that by Judas is sealed. Our passage, John 13, 27 to 30, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he had said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. Now, Satan, we know, is not God. He is bound to one place and time. Satan cannot be everywhere at once the way that God is. In the Scriptures, people are demon-possessed, but not by Satan. He can only be in one place at one time, and so I imagine he saves himself for the big jobs, like betraying Jesus, right? So this is how Satan works. What was Satan thinking at the time? Surely that this was a win. Surely that by betraying Jesus, somehow this was going to work out well for Satan in the end. Always remember, all he was doing was fulfilling part of God's sovereign plan, right? Satan has no authority over God. God is in control. They say there are only two certainties in this life, death and taxes. Well, I've got a friend in the Bible called Enoch, and he never tasted death. And it seems that the very rich don't pay any taxes. So, I'm not sure death and taxes are all that certain. 
I can tell you there is one definite certainty, and that is that God is in control. This world will end when God says it will end. All things will come to pass that God says will come to pass. God is in control. Church, there is no dualism. If you're not familiar with this term, there are some people out there in the greater realm of Christendom who say that there's like this cosmic war going on between God and Satan, and it's this dualistic idea almost that they are two equal factions at war. That's a lie. There's no dualism going on. We don't need to wait to see who wins. God is in control. Don't be a person worried about a demon here and there and everywhere. Get on with the mission of God, right? A verse from Paul. A battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Therefore, stay at home and hide in fear. Right? Is that what it says? No. No, no. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And then what's Paul do? He gets out there amongst the powers and principalities declaring the name of Jesus. Right? The missionary to the Gentiles, the guy that walks among the, the altars to other gods at Mars Hill, the guy who's not afraid to get in there and pronounce the good news of Jesus Christ. So yeah, Paul recognizes the battle and then he stands on the victory of Christ and proclaims the gospel. Right? That's what we're meant to take from this. Disciples didn't really know what was going on. It's a lot to take on board. Some thought Jesus was saying, quickly, go and buy food. We need food now. Others thought that Jesus was saying, now go and give money to the poor. And we know from previously in John that Judas had the money bag. We know that Judas was also stealing from the money bag. We know that this sin of Judas, the focus on wealth, was never dealt with in his life until it's a full-blown problem that leads to the betrayal of Christ. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right? That's highlighted here in this passage. Judas has Christ and a love of money, and the love of money causes him to betray Christ. And that is always the case. And that is what that verse says. You cannot serve two uh, masters. You put money first, eventually you betray Christ. Most of you know that famous quote from Jim Elliot, who died as a martyr. "'Tis no fool he gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." Right? Forsake those worldly treasures to gain Christ. Further, the Bible says, James 4.4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Right? Friendship with the world, love of the world causes you to betray God. And all people, everyone in this church right here, right now, I especially think of younger people here, teenagers, young adults, this is the big question that you must wrestle with. 
Why is it, do you think, that so many young people finish youth group and then fall away? Why many never survive into maturity in their Christian faith? Why when they get old enough that their parents can no longer choose for them, they fall away? Why is that? Because at that age, they have to make a choice between the world or Christ. And the world equals popularity. Loving maybe a non-Christian. Money, comfort, fun, parties, getting drunk. Whatever it might be, but you weigh that up and then you decide that it means more to you than does Christ and Him crucified. Is that what happens? You get old enough and you have to make the choice. And so many choose the world. But one day it will betray them. Everyone must make this choice. You cannot have both. A love of one is hatred of the other. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. This is what Judas attempted and he lost Jesus. This is what so many attempt and they lose Jesus. Church, have you made your choice? Or are you trying to live in both? You need to decide it's either Christ or the world. You cannot love one and the other. Can I tell you this? When you choose Jesus, when you put him ahead of the world, you will lose some things. That's a fact. You will lose some popularity. You will lose some of the things the world offers. But you gain eternal life. You gain peace which can never be taken from you. You gain an identity as a child adopted into God's family that can never be taken from you by the world. You gain forgiveness. You gain brothers and sisters. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are victors and we share in His glory. If you choose Christ and forsake the world, the scripture says that you will reign with him for all eternity, that you will partake in the victory of Christ over sin and death. So yes, for a little while you lose what the world offers, but you gain an eternity of glory with Jesus Christ. Church, can I plead with you? Forsake the world. It's a temporary treasure at best and gain the eternal glory that Christ offers. Judas, for the love of the world, loses Christ and eventually realizes that the worldly thing he gained was utterly worthless. Every person here that chooses the world will eventually realize that it is utterly worthless. But choose Christ before it's too late. Right. Why can we celebrate such a, a story of betrayal this Sunday? Because God was in control. It was a part of his plan of our redemption to gain Christ forevermore and he offers us salvation through his death and resurrection. Church, that's what we celebrate together. Let's pray.
Lord, help us, please. Continually remind us, Lord, of the passing false treasures of this life. Lord, when we are waiting on that moment of our death, when our final breaths are coming, what then is money, fame, position, power, privilege? Only a fearful expectation of judgment. Lord, may we forsake those things, repent and put our faith in Christ. Lord, forsaking the things of the world, knowing that following Jesus means that we will find persecution, that we will face suffering, but we will gain eternal life. And those final breaths can be filled with the hope and peace of knowing that when we see Christ, we will see him in all his glory and be with him forevermore. Lord, we thank you for this in your name. Amen.